COVID has been a great opportunity, as tragic as it's been for all of us in one way or another, right? It's been a great opportunity because it's peeling back the onion and it's showing that those practices we thought were sustainable are not sustainable. And in fact, it's showing that the future currency for the future of work and leadership and the way we structure organizations is going to be trust. This is the Rebel HR Podcast, the podcast where we talk to HR innovators about all things people leadership. If you're looking for places to find about new ways to think about the world of work, this is the podcast for you. Please subscribe from your favorite podcast listening platform today and leave us a review. Rebel on, HR Rebels. Welcome back, Rebel HR listeners. This is going to be a fun episode. With us today, we have Paul McCarthy. Paul is the founder of the Paul Mac Leadership organization, and he has uh, some content for us today, uh, some exciting uh, news on a podcast he's working on as well with one of our our, uh, past guests. Um, His entire life changed after being fired from four executive leadership roles for demonstrating the leadership qualities that he was hired for. That prompted him to come up with the FIRED leadership framework. We're going to be diving into that today. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Kyle, very, very happy to be here. Thank you. I love love the intro. So kind of eager to get going wherever this goes. Absolutely. With us, we also have Molly Burdess, who's going to be asking all the good questions. Thanks, Molly, for joining us. Hi, guys. Hey. <laughs> all right, Paul, let's jump into it. I'm fascinated to learn about how you fell into this work. Yeah, yeah. It's something that's on everybody's uh, minds these days because as I think I was telling you just backstage, uh, about three or four years ago, we, we started this whole new thought leadership into the future of leadership and people thought I was crazy. You know, if friends started to step away, romantic partners asked me if I was crazy. And a lot of leadership influencers and authors that you've probably had on your podcast and we've all read the book, so I thought I was crazy. Um, jump forward four years later, lots of those people are in my network now. So it it wasn't by design. I I basically wanted to be the leader who fitted in. And I was a career consultant, so management leadership consultant for, you know, 25 plus years. And I rose the ranks in organizations and I became a leader in different consulting firms that we've all heard of that I can't name because my lawyers tell me that we might go into <laughs> litigation territory, Don't which get is trouble. fantastic. Um, but my expertise was was also developing leaders. So it was my role to go in and help develop C-suite and VP level and HR directors, training managers, that kind of level. And I, I noticed that, you know, as part of that, my, my job was to stay on top of the trends in terms of what was coming with leadership. And, and this was pre-COVID for, for any listeners out there. So this was, was a number of years ago. And as I, as I got as I went out and delivered consulting work to, to quite high-profile clients and developed their leaders, and as I continued to be, to be you know, a leader myself and recruited by, by these consulting firms, I, I was hired for qualities, leadership qualities that would eventually get me fired. And the leadership qualities were kind of tested and assessed over six to nine interviews on average for the level of leadership role I was going into. So a very costly, very time-consuming process to get me on board. And as soon as I started demonstrating the leadership qualities, I would get my card marked, I would be blacklisted, and I would be basically ostracized, discredited, marginalized, and ultimately fired. 
And so after that, my story took a very interesting turn because most people don't like talking about being fired. And actually when they're fired, it's a taboo subject. So they go to a bookstore and get a book, which is helping them to, ha- to massage their resume and deal with being fired. And that's not what happened in my case. I basically started to unearth a question, which was, this was the question which started this whole thing. Are we firing the type of talent that we'll need to navigate ongoing disruption? Yes or no? And as soon as I asked that question, a whole year's worth of research opened up to me, which was to, to then review the reasons why I was fired. And there were five of them. And they eventually became the FIRE leadership framework. And the FIRE stands for five different leadership qualities that I, I would find out from reviewing hundreds of leadership programs globally were missing from the way we develop leaders. And all of a sudden, I, I started asking another question, which was, if we're firing leaders for not, you know, for, for demonstrating these qualities we say we want, why aren't we developing these qualities in our leaders? And then I started to step on a bunch of things, which I later called ego-based leadership landmines. And I, I would be introduced to, to the toxicity of leadership. And, and it would go even deeper, Kyle, because I, I would then start to say, actually, we've got systemically and um, institutionally dysfunctional leadership identification, recruitment, onboarding, and development processes. And it went even further and it's, you know, a first of three books is coming out. Um, I've got a whole bunch of practice areas that I, I focus on. I go out to the world now with, and it all started because I was fired for demonstrating the qualities that I was hired for. And I would, you know, I would un- un- unintentionally, I would highlight the hypocrisy of leadership. And that's really what started this whole path. I can see you smiling for those. I know we're on video, but the audience or people listen to, but I can see you smiling. So. I'm going to give you a pause there and see where you want to take this now. No, I just, you know, I'm smiling because uh, in my head, I'm just hearing yes. (laughs) So, you know, if you want, if if you wanted a podcast where they, you know, we would argue with you on those points, you're probably on the wrong, uh, on the wrong podcast. But, you know, it's fascinating because I, you know, I live that corporate life, you know, I'm all about that life. And um, certainly early on in my career, um, I was just trying to assimilate. Right. And it's, and, you know, kind of clip my wings, so to speak, so that I, so that I fit in. Um, and I was actually giving a presentation at a, at a, a college class here locally. And somebody asked me that question, how did you get where you are? And, and I thought about it for a minute. And I, I honestly said, I mimicked the people who were in power. Mm. You know, that's, I mean, that's, you know, early on in my career, that's, that's how I was successful. And I was, I was successful at mimicking. But at a certain point, I realized I was just an actor on stage as opposed to being, you know, authentically myself. And I feel like that's, I agree, it's a systemic issue. And so often we, we hire these bright, talented, you know, enthusiastic people, and then we just neuter them and try to force them into a mold that probably isn't helping us be successful in the first place. So that was a long way to say, yes, I agree. Well, and, and, and thank you. I, I love the neuter analogy. And, and I'm going to take it one step further, which is kind of saying, I, I am convinced from my global research and interviewing hundreds of leaders by now and the HR community that the type of leader we need for the future is the leader who doesn't fit into a broken system today. That, that margin, that marginalized leader, that, that kind of misinterpreted leader who demonstrates what on the outside world to the outside world looks like annoyance and that that kind of questioning things you know why question it it works why do we have to to bother trying to evolve it 
well, this is what gets leaders like me and others that I've come across into trouble because we highlight the ineffectiveness of, of systems that aren't working. And we don't just do that to be troublemakers. We actually do that because we're driven by what we call an overwhelming sense of purpose to, to evolve the organization, right? And so this would be what I would later find out from Frederick Leloux's work from Reinventing Organizations, that the, the future of organizations and HR people need you know, lean in at this point because this is the future. We are going to move from the, the organizational structures we have now to self-managing structures, which basically means independent organizations and systems that are driven by a sense of evolutionary purpose. And at their core is this sense of people being different from, from where they are now. And so it's, it's really quite, quite fascinating to me. And I know to, to Molly and Newcastle that, um, we, we're, we're growing a network here. And, and yet there are some people like I look at it as the startup curve. You're going to have the, you know, the early adopters, then you're going to have the laggards and then you're going to have you're the mainstream, then you're going to have the laggards. And I'm, I choose now only to work with those that are progressive in their mindsets because I go in and talk to CEOs. They think I'm crazy still because I say, you know, in five years time, performance management review process, RIP, it's not going to be around anymore. Role profiles and judging people by their roles, not going to work anymore. You know, Spotify right now are, are hiring for cultural fit. They don't do role profiles anymore, right? Look at their share price. Let's see where they are. And so what I'm saying is that the, the, the mindset of the leader who doesn't fit in now is exactly the mindset we need for our leaders to thrive in, in ongoing disruption. I love that. I, I, I want to dig into that topic a little bit more, though, the, the mm. whole concept of, of self-managing structures and, you know, working a purpose as opposed to a, a job. Because I, I think everybody listening to this right now can probably think about an occurrence or a situation where they've seen that in, in an employee, or they've seen that where there's been a point of conflict because there's, a, there's a, an employee that, that is working in that manner, but they've got a leader that is not accepting of that manner, right? So. So, you know, as we think about kind of this future state of, of, of work and management structures, uh, I, I'm curious to, to maybe dive into the, um, the leadership framework a little bit more. You know, what are those specific aspects of leadership that you think we need to cultivate and screen for so that we're set up for the success in the future of our organization? Hey, great question. Thank you. Uh, well, we, you know, and if I take you through the fire leadership framework at a high level, and there's, there's more obviously detail on my website and, and other sources that, that I'm sure we'll, we'll sh uh, reference in show notes and stuff. But, you know, I think we need, we need leaders that, um, that have the ability and the, the courage to think and act differently. And so that's what I call the fresh, the S, the fresh thinking. So. I'm of a, and my research shows me, and, and my philosophy and the work I've done shows me that, you know, innovation comes from the ability to, to be disruptive. So if you reverse fishbone this, right, innovation is the product of disruptive um, or being disruptive. That requires you to have disruptive thinking, but you need to create the culture in your organization that disruption is not seen as a dirty word. In fact, disruption is seen as a quality that all talent, regardless of whether they're a leader or not, need to have as part of the way that they're identified, recruited, onboarded, and developed. And so for me, the F is the fresh thinking. And that is, that's the injection of new ideas 
that, you know, that's, you know, Marshall Goldsmith talks about fail forward and others talk about fail fast. We need to be creating an environment where, where we can, uh, and I'm about to kind of be even more controversial if, if that was even possible. But, you know, you have people like Adam Grant and Simon Sinek and they, and, and I've got my own views on them and they do some great work, but they, they talk about that we've, um, we've normalized dysfunction in the way that we work. Um, that Adam Grant calls it the normalization of deviance. I call it the normalization of dysfunction. But what, what we're doing with the fired framework and F in particular is actually shifting that from normalized dysfunction to normalized disruption. So the leader has at, at the outset this disruptive mentality and, and there's a place for it because the culture embraces it. So that's the F. The I, and, and this leverages quite a bit of work from Francesca Gino, professor at Harvard which is the inquisitive nature. So she did a piece of work a few years ago called The Business Case for Curiosity. And she showed and she argued that, that we need leaders and talent to, to be more curious. But in fact, our organizational structures, in fact, chief learning officers particularly and HR directors actively, and, and this is going to be controversial to your listeners, but they actively discourage people from being curious. And you know why? Because it costs the organization, they think, too much money. So I ask as a counter question, can you afford not to get your leaders being curious and inquisitive? Because if, if they're not, they're going to leave and they're going to cost you more money anyway. I'll just throw a little stat in here. It costs up to 400% of a leader's base salary to replace them, whether they've left voluntarily or not. More on that later, perhaps. Um, the R is real and accountable, right? I'm... I'm fed up of putting together those one-page laminates that sit on a wall-mounted, you know, mission statement with words like vulnerability, transparency, integrity. That's the first data point when I got. Have you got one on your wall? Can't. I just look back at my wall. I'm like, yeah. Oh, mine, mine says determination on it. Love it. Now, so, so I call it three data points, right? So, and it's and it's the basis of the R, the real uncountable. That's the first data point which you see on every leader's wall, right? The second data point is you see the books that they read you know, Jim Collins, Simon Sinek, whoever the author, insert here. And the third data point is the way they lead. And there's a complete incongruence in my research of hundreds, if not thousands of leaders now between those three data points. So the real and accountable is basically turn up to work as yourself. Don't wear a mask. In fact, there's research that says we, we wear professional masks because we, we're worried about not being promoted and we need to fit in. Don't we? That's the, the common narrative. The E is expressive and um, challenging. And that's basically cutting through the crap. And, you know, I, I always cite this statistic because it's, it's quite a, a prominent statistic, which gets HR folks thinking. Um, the University of Nebraska did some research where they found out we spend approximately 22 years of our career in meetings. And 50% of those meetings we don't need to have. So we've got leaders in meetings of all different levels, not being very productive and spend it costing lots and lots of money and time. So the E is someone that goes into a meeting, as an example, very clear what the purpose of the meeting is, whose role, who's doing what, what do we want to achieve from this? How do we measure the accountability? Who's doing what at the end, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a real cultural shift of how, how we uh, address some of the inertia that can happen when we've all been around the meeting table. So the expressive and challenging is, is just, you know, challenges the status quo, questions what they see. Again, in a very purpose-driven way. 
And by the way, there's there's lots more details of all of these these um, qualities in in the work that we've done. I'm just kind of high level overview for you guys. The D is direct and transparent, and that's basically the leader who doesn't play the political game. And in fact, I'm always asked this question: Well, you know, I've got a mortgage to pay, got kids to feed, I want to stay in my job. How do I how do I navigate a political system? Well, you wake up every morning, you brush your teeth, don't you? Yeah. You've got another question you could ask yourself when you look in the mirror. How much do I want to play the political game today? And what's it costing me? And the stats on burnout and mental health are just corroborating the fact that we've had enough of this. We don't want to play the game anymore, Kyle. So in a nutshell, the D is, is someone that, that is very clear with their intentions, you know, calls out the political and the silo-based behaviors that, that we all see in organizations. Um, but the future will not will not require that as a currency. So those, those five things, when we did the research over 12 months, we found they were not actively um, sought out in leaders and they weren't developed. And as an aside, I'm developing, I think, the world's first program to push these five qualities into the future of leaders. That was a very long-winded way of giving you an idea of the fired framework, but there's lots more meat on the bone, but th that was a kind of high-level overview and it's uh you know it never gets boring this stuff i think it's fantastic I, i'm buying what you're selling here not controversial to me you know you were typing about being um curious and people and organization um struggling with that when i think of that and you, and you said primarily because of money right i also think ego comes into play just like I see people, you know, we've done that or we've tried that or this is why we haven't done that. Do you see ego coming into play at all here? Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, as I said earlier, when we, we talked in the, in the early part of the conversation, I, I would later discover um, the hypocrisy of leadership by stepping on what I would call ego-based leadership landmines. And I put that in my first of three books and I talk about that in much more detail. But um, as an example to some of your listeners about ego, uh, in my first book, I, I actually reference um, a guy called Ted Selka. Now, you, you may know who that is, you may not, but Ted Selka um, was the creator of, you know, that little red dot in the middle of the ThinkPad, the mouse. Ted Selka created that and, and almost didn't create that because he didn't get on with his boss. And there was a bit of like, well, my idea is better than your idea. And so his boss wanted to get rid of him. And they, they worked it out and they had conversations. These are all, this is all publicly available information, by the way. And so I use it as a case study for, for the eye in, in my, my first book. But they were able to create the conditions to have conversation, truthful, honest based conversations where they, they discussed the ego and the effect of the ego, right? So in that case, this story had a happy ending. But now I'm going to tell you how and when it doesn't have a happy ending. Gallup came out with some statistics a few years ago, and those numbers have increased significantly. The global cost of disengagement is $7.8 trillion every year. When I started this work three years ago, that number was $7 trillion. What do you think it's going to be in three years from now? And at the heart of that, Molly, to your, your question, is people are disengaged because of the way that they're managed, the way that they're led. Ego... Ego has been the currency of the 90s and the 2000s and, and the 2010s. It's not going to be the currency going forward. And, and you know, EY, I, think, I don't know if you know this research, but 96% of people they research at leadership level 
will not join or stay in your organization if their individual purpose doesn't align to the organizations. That, that research happened before COVID, right? So I wonder what that is now. But again, to the point of ego, you, you, how, how can you create an organizational structure going forward where you, you know, am I, am I optimistic, overly optimistic in saying we don't, we don't have ego in the future organization? No, I think we, we, we all have ego, but it's, it's, it's creating the environment to say, well, how do we make decisions knowing that we, our egos might be dented and bruised and we have to create the infrastructure for that? So it's, um, it's a topical topic, especially because of our friend that maybe I can't name, but um, who's trying to um, basically force people at managerial level in Twitter to work longer hours. Otherwise, he'll fire them. I put a post out on that, Kyle, and within 24 hours, it had 30,000 views. So at least 30,000 people looked at it and, and they're thinking about whatever they're thinking. But, but that is not the future. Yeah, I saw um, I saw a meme that uh, uh, I don't know. Can we can we name the name without getting banned or something? I don't know if there's some algorithm on Apple that's going to be like you can't say Elon Musk. I don't know. Maybe we just got banned. But yeah, I, uh, well, I, I think I said it first. So that's um, right. Let's... But that's all good. I'm I'm not scared. Bring it on. Um, but I, I like the meme. It said uh, Elon Musk is running Twitter like uh, like Death Row Records right now. Like it's that's <laughs> And uh, I think there's probably some truth to that. I don't think that fits the fired uh, uh, leadership framework, though, Paul. I, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> no, in fact, I, I, I also just in follow up to that, because again, I, I referenced um, Reed Hastings, the co-founder of Netflix in my book. And I, I saw a clip on him being interviewed yesterday or the day before by a news outlet on, on Musk. And again, by the way, I, I'll take the flack here because I'm mentioning <laughs> Musk doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. Um, bring it on. I'd like to do one on one with him, actually, but that's another conversation. Um, but Reed Hastings is of the view that, that, you know, um, Elon Musk is, is a, a genius in what he's been able to do. But he then goes on to say, but his leadership style is not the style that, that we advocate in Netflix and it's not the future. Right. So people are f- focusing on the first part of that more by saying he's a genius, but they're not focusing on the fact that actually his methods to get there are not sustainable because he will lose talent. Those talent will go there in, in such demand anyway. They'll go to other places and it will ultimately have an effect in some way. So I, I think that's, that's our next pandemic, actually, Kyle, is, is, a, is a, walking, a walking talent machine or a walking talent train. I'm, I mean, I'm feeling that. I'm sure you are, Molly. You know, we yep. we we are we we started seeing these warning signs. I don't know, four, five, six, seven years ago, when we we would have um, at that point we would consider them idealists <laughs> who who would quit because they you know that they, they just don't feel like they're they're working their own personal mission, you know, mm-hmm. or they or they feel like you know that the organization's mission is incongruent with what their personal mission is, and they want to work for a company that's that's helping fulfill their personal, um, you know, I- intrinsic value set, which is just, you know, I didn't hear that 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but I, I, I certainly am hearing that now. And, and, and I'm seeing that now, whereas in the past, I felt like it was more like tr- going to the, the brand name, right? Like, like, oh, I want to work for a specific 
company because of the perks or the compensation. Now it's, I want to go work for this company because of what they believe in and what they do. It's, it's just a very different landscape than it used to be. That, and I think people just want to make an impact. And when leaders and organizations, you know, keep stomping on their ideas and their goals, I think obviously that's not creating a great culture, which I think comes back to what you're, we're talking about, Paul. Mm. Well, and, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier around self-managing organizational structures, you know, when we now introduce, and, and I love Frederick Leloux's work, um, who wrote Reinventing Organizations, which, which is, is the pioneer in this area. Um, but one of the things that's missing from that work, which I, I take up, is how do we integrate different generations of workforce into a different structure? But also, how do we lead in that different environment? And so, you know, Carl, you mentioned around yeah, um, purpose-driven and, and values and intrinsic values. That very much is the currency and the, and the breeding ground of these future self-managing organizational structures. And as much as I applaud all of that work, the, the one thing, and I am a bit of a disruptor, compassionate disruptor, but a disruptor nonetheless, is that's great. We're talking about this coming in the future, but who's thinking about what comes after teal-based organizations, which is Frederick Leloux's? No one's talking about that. No one's talking about Generation Alpha. Two and a half million of them are born every week, but no one's thinking about when they get into the workforce, what are they going to, how are they going to want to be led? And so maybe I'm thinking too far ahead, but, but it's, it's what the lack of ability of people like us in our industry to not think that far ahead is what's got us into this, this challenge. I mean, you know, your, your listeners are mostly in the U S right. I think. And, you know, for, so whoever wants to talk about toxicity, that's another buzzword, which I write a lot about, um, that the true cost of toxicity in the last five years is about $220 billion. Right. Think about that. Just, just think about it. And, you know, the, it, it's staggering. The, the still the, the amount of laggards that there are in the HR space because they feel controlled and constrained by a system that they, they feel they inherited and they have to play in, but they don't because they can reconstruct it as it goes forward. And my invitation is to do it sooner rather than later. Well, now you're speaking my language. So, you know, let's, let's dig into that. So most, most of our listeners are HR practitioners. Um, many of them are looking for a new way <laughs> to, to do the work that they're passionate about. And, and many of them are quite honestly disenfranchised with the work that they've been asked to do over the, uh, the last, you know, many years of their careers. So as you take a look at HR specifically, what are some specific areas that you see are just ripe for disruption? Where, where do we need to start to push back? How long have we got on this? This, that's, that's, hey man, open um, mic. <laughs> so, so firstly, I, I and I, you know, I, I think I mentioned this earlier to you about HR on the table analogy, and and maybe this is a good point to start this conversation thread with because I think the first area HR needs to disrupt is itself, and I, I think it needs to question what it's what it wants to be when it grows up. Now, I've anyone listening to this thinking, oh, who's this, this idiot, you know, coming on telling us this? Well, I've been in your shoes. I've almost 30 years, I've worked with people like you, HR managers, HR directors, chief people officers, VPs of HR. Um, I've gone in and worked with you. I've helped to restructure and restructure HR functions and elevate them in their roles from being transactional to transformational. 
And I, you know, I went a few years ago to a much coveted um, future HR uh, innovative conference that was being done at the Mars Center in Toronto. Apparently it had like 100 to 200 of North America's most innovative HR leaders. So I got there as part, and, and this is who I wanted to introduce you to offline, perhaps, Kyle, to, to kind of have a, a guest on your podcast. Um, I went to this, this uh, event as part of my preparation for the first book. And I was just sitting in the back, taking notes, speaking to people. And, I, and I, because I've worked with HR people so much, I, I, was, I was quite uh, taken aback, not in a good way, by the lack of innovation in that room. Some bright minds, some very talented people, yet they were so constrained by their own inability or reluctance, um, you call it disenfranchised, um, to the, their lack of ability to be able to look in the mirror to see what they need to do differently individually to shift the system. So I got on the mic, as, I, as I'm not a shrinking violet, I got on the mic and I said, you guys think you're the most innovative people, which is great, but let me tell you a story about you know, the table. And the table is this, you know, 25 years ago, HR had, weren't even at the table. They were getting crumbs from the table. Their role was pink slips and benefits and payroll administration. You came to HR when you wanted to know how many days you have left in your vacation schedule, right? So they were getting crumbs from the table. Now I am generalizing. So if anyone wants to put a target on my back, you know, let's have a conversation before you do that. So, and then, then about. 15 years or 10 years after that, so 15 years after that, HR then got a seat at the table. So now they're involved in things like, you know, um, talent management conversations and role profiles and succession planning and workforce planning and all this. And it was great. Okay. So now fast forward, you know, the last five years, more and more HR at, or at almost at the head of the table, right? And they're, they're right next to the, the chief exec and the boards and they're driving workforce strategy and planning and they're using data and analytics from that data to, to inform and, and, and shape recruitment efforts and, you know, development programs and all that, right? Now, fast forward to when that conference was, which is also today, right now, um, you are at the head of the table. But my question to the people at that conference a few years ago is why are you still assuming it's a table? Because you can create that. You can create what the future is. So now you're driving everything, the strategy, the vision, the direction. The CEO is a partner to you now, and you're still assuming it's a table. So my, my invitation to people listening to this, if they haven't switched off already, is if you're at the head of the table, you're there because of the evolution of HR. You get to decide if you blow the table up and start again because the future of work and COVID and the movement of talent and the, the globalization of we can work from anywhere, these are just four or five levers that actually justify us having this conversation about disrupting the HR industry. So if you're disenfranchised, you think there's nothing you can do, look in the mirror and see, and see what you can do in your individual role, step changes to create a bigger ripple effect. So that was the table analogy. It's kind of uh, something I speak a lot with HR folks about. And once we get past the, you know, the self-awareness piece here, because, you know, sometimes we don't like, you know, it's like the emperor's new clothes, Kyle. Like some, we don't want to, we don't want to tell, tell you that your baby's ugly. 
but I'm, I'm kind of telling you that your baby's ugly, <laughs> you know, and it has a ch- you have a chance to rescope what the future looks like. So leverage expertise, leverage thought partners to help you do that. Because that's the one thing I've found from working at HR. They, they don't like it when people come in and try and do it to them. And I've always worked in partnership with HR. So leverage this, the expertise around because they're in it for the right reason. So that's my initial, initial thinking. I'm sure you can go deeper than that with me. I think it's fantastic. I think it's also very hard because that's just not what we know. That's not what we've learned, especially people that are new in their HR career. Like we have all these boundaries and policies and laws that, you know, we're required to stay in this box. And I think it just takes a lot of confidence, understanding of the business and, and really courage to break outside that mold. But once you do and you see the impact that you can have, it feels damn good. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and you talk about being constrained by boundaries and policies. Um, but, but again, lots of research has is, is come, come out to show that um, when, when you don't put labels on people, when you don't set expectations, their productivity, their morale actually significantly improves. And, you know, I'll go back to that statistic earlier on that I mentioned, up to 400% of a leader's salary it is, is what it costs in direct costs to replace that leader. Now, that's leaders. That, that could be HR leaders, uh, you know, VP level HR directors and above. But the costs, I think, for non-leaders, if there's an HR analyst or HR manager or business partner, it's still about 213 to 300%, right? It doesn't matter how they leave, but that's still a staggering cost, guys. And so I would, do, I would also invite, you know, if you're any disenfranchised people out there listening to this, you know, and, and you want to create a culture where that's not the case, that's only a direct cost. There's indirect costs on productivity, morale, alumni, plus there's litigation costs, plus there's pension, medical, all that kind of cost. So it, doesn't it make financial sense to create a culture where people feel empowered? And what's the one of the best ways to do that? actually create the conditions to have truthful and honest conversations by asking those disenfranchised people why they're disenfranchised and what they would do differently if they had if they had the opportunity to be involved absolutely which which is honestly um this is kind of sad it's that's an innovative thought in the hr realm right in many cases Um, which is, you know, why we started this podcast mm. and why we have you on here today, Paul. <laughs> so, um, no, I, I, um, I often talk with people that are, um, uh, not as, not as ready to disrupt as perhaps I and you guys are and others that I know. So one of the things I, I, I always advise people is, is wherever you are right now, it's, it's okay. Wherever you are right now. We meet you where you are. And the idea is, is just make small incremental shifts every day because that's what culture is. Culture is, is the, the kind of, you know, the consolidation of all of those tiny little shifts. Because if you make a shift, someone else makes a shift. And all of those shifts start to create something noticeable. I'm not suggesting you, you throw a grenade in the middle of the room and blow up your HR industry right now. You know, I did four years ago and I, I wanted to see what people thought 
and and some some thought it was a cool idea yeah. some necessarily didn't but you know I, i've been in your shoes so i know what it feels like right and so what i would say is where can you have the most impact you know where can you have the most influence over conversations that you're having to start trying new things and i did this with a one of canada's largest finance organizations which was traditionally quite um uh, conservative and they had a lot of dysfunction and toxicity in their in their hr environment and one of one of my tools which was name what you see um is as it suggests it was it was basically created from a, a uk show back in the 70s and 80s called catchphrase which was basically you know you're you you're basically a contestant and you you know these little squares move away and to reveal a catchphrase and you've got to be able to answer the catchphrase before the clock counts down and it's name what you see right and so in the same sense i do that with with addressing toxicity and dysfunction i create this tool to help hr leaders that say in your weekly cadence of meetings right go around the team and just talk about where you're seeing some challenges in your team now you have to create the openness to have the conversation, which, which, as we know from Amy Edmondson's work around tilling the fertile soil for psychological safety and everything like that, and there's some great work in that area. But start trying this and having conversations where, you know, Kyle, I'll ask you about what's your challenge? You know, Molly, what's yours? And then we vote as a team, what's the one challenge we can work on this week to address and reduce levels of, of dysfunction and disenfranchisement in our team? Then we come back and we, we measure and we hold each other accountable, right? And this finance um, organization that I worked with, measurable improvements literally over one month of doing this because they'd internalized it into the cadence of how they showed up. And it took time to manifest, but now it's embedded as part of the culture. So it's one thing you could do right now. Yeah, I love that approach. And it, yeah. Especially in the world of HR, I couldn't agree more. Sometimes it's just about that incrementalism, where it's just just a little bit better yourself every day. Uh, in you know whether that's you know an interaction with an employee, helping coach a manager, um, taking a look at a system that just doesn't make sense. Let's just change this so that it doesn't happen anymore. You know, the, I mean those sorts of things. But you know, it is that it's that effect. Eventually, it it, it does start to build on itself, right? And it, it does become kind of a self fulfilling. Um, mm. prophecy at, at a certain point um, but it takes time and and resilience and, uh, and and a little bit of courage depending on the organization right absolutely and, and none of this none of this happens overnight it's it's uh, you know, we're, we're in this for a, a generational change and we can start to affect that change pretty quickly because I've, I've done that and I've, I've helped organizations to do that so Anyone that sits there and says, well, you know, that'll never work. You know, I've got a few years left before I sunset off into the retirement. Well, I'm sorry to say this, but you're part of the problem and you need to go. And so that's what John Cotter talks about, dead wood, getting rid of dead wood. And you can't do that until you have, the, again, the honest conversations, because if your culture is shielding and, and ha has become complacent, to those that are eroding your the future fabric of your organization, then that's on the you know you need to, you need to address that before you do anything else. Um, and that's you know COVID has been a, a great opportunity, as tragic as it's been for all of us in one way or another. Right? It's been a great opportunity because it's peeling back the onion, 
And it's showing that those practices we thought were sustainable are not sustainable. And in fact, it's showing that the, the future currency for the future of work and leadership and the way we structure organizations is going to be trust. 100%. Mm-hmm. 100%. I do love throwing a hand grenade here and there, though. That is kind of fun sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that, too. I've thrown a few of them, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just asking the hard question. Sometimes that's a grenade in itself. And I think that's where we in HR can really make a difference is by asking the questions, because I found that a lot of people don't like to ask the hard question. Absolutely. And one, you know, one of the things, Molly, from that, just to build on that idea is, is um, asking the hard questions of your stakeholders is, is what I'd recommend as well, because there's perceptions here. You know, there's perceptions that the business have of HR and there's perceptions HR have of the business. And, and I've worked with enough over a hundred organizations in my career to know that one of the consistent features of HR is that they are seen in a vacuum. They are seen as a silo and they, they, they often don't engage the business to ask the business, what do they need? What do they want? How are they perceived? You know, a great, a great tool I use is the Johari window. And it, and it's a great tool individually to, to help identify your blind spots, but I use it at, at a corporate level to help teams and def- departments and, and divisions to identify their blind spots too. So why don't some of your, your listeners try that? Go out and engage some of the, the, the folks that they think are the biggest resistors. Ask them two or three key questions that are uncomfortable. See, see what data comes back and do something with the data. Easy. You pay me as a consultant fifty thousand dollars for that piece of advice. <laughs> I'd do it yourself. There you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll submit that bill to my CEO after I do. See what happens. <laughs> Please do. I, I think you know really really powerful concepts here. Some some really great content. Um, you know I think a little bit of a teaser. There's a whole lot more to unpack here. Um, so I, I want to shift gears. We'll go into the Rebel HR flash round, and then I want to make sure that we leave our listeners with an opportunity to learn more. So uh, question number one, where does HR need to rebel? Yeah, well, I alluded to this earlier. I think it needs to take a look in the mirror and I think it needs to create a few champions and ambassadors to have the courage, to your point, Molly, have that courage to have the conversation. So if you if you don't like what looks back at you from the mirror, you know you've got to dig deeper. So my my thing about rebellion is, You've got to rebel yourself and be open to that first. Then, you know, then there's a whole slew of other things, which I can give you an idea of, but maybe we just want to pause there for the, for the initial act of rebellion. Find that inner rebel. Rebel on. I'm, I'm with you. All right. Question number two, who should we be listening to? Oh, well, I, I, I am obviously going to say that you need to be listening to me because I've got my own podcast coming up. Um, with some of the other folks that I would recommend listening to that I'll mention in a minute. But yeah, I've got a, a podcast coming up monthly, which is is going to be raw and it's going to be like yours, you know, and it's going to ask the difficult questions. It's going to be unapologetic for doing so, but it's, it's going to offer practical insights and tips and perspectives and all, you know, all from a position of helping to evolve something. And so I would encourage people to, to follow me as we will get to that um, at a later point, I'm sure. But um, the other guys, obviously, geeks, geezers, and Googleization, Ira Wolf, you talk to. I think they, you know, they're talking a lot about the future of work. They're talking about this not just from a leadership perspective, but they're talking about impact on HR from you know 
data analytics, to, to digital transformation, to workforce planning, to succession planning, a whole myriad of topics. Um, I like, I like the work of, and you've had them on your show. I like the work of Karen Mangia. Um, and so Karen's interviewed me for Thrive Global shortly, but she's done a whole uh, slew of pieces on the future of work. And there's some golden nuggets in some of her one-on-ones with, with people she's done that if you're, you know, if, if you're feeling disenfranchised and you want to do something about it, my encouragement to you is take 10 of those interviews, look for 10 key points, put together a plan. All of a sudden you've got a, a roadmap for the next two to three years of how you could evolve your HR department. Simple. Again, you pay a bunch of money from a consultant for that. And now you can do it right on your own. And then um, the other one, again, you've had him on your show, uh, Brendan, I think it's Brendan Pooter, um, who does a lot of work around culture. So I know Brendan and love the work he's doing um, in culture and, 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 you know, talking about culture from a different perspective. So, um, and, and questioning the status quo around this. So they're just some. That, that spring to mind. I'm sure there's, there's more when I think deeper, but there's, they're who I think you might want to listen to. I love, you know, I, I can't stop smiling, Paul, because, you know, we started this podcast like, you know, two and a half, three years ago. And, and, the, and the entire intent was just to try to put a, put a voice out there where, you know, we're just trying to innovate, trying to get better, disrupt some things, you know, on a really small scale, honestly. We, we started locally in our small Midwest town. And, um, you know, now you're, you know, we've had the opportunity to connect very like-minded, you know, I've had the opportunity to connect with many of the people you just mentioned. Um, and if any listeners interested, we talked to Ira Wolf on episode 46 and Karen Manja on episode 85. Um, so you can go back and check those out. But, you know, I, I think as we all kind of do this work together and as our listeners are, are reflecting on the content that we, we build, it really is, you know, this is an opportunity to find that network, to, to, to listen to those experts, to hear different perspectives, and ultimately bring this back into your organization or into your business or, or whatever role you're in and, and make that ripple effect, right? Make the world a little bit better through some, some common sense uh, disruption. So really appreciate well, that. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is, I just, just would say as well to any listeners, and, and I've, I've experienced this myself, which is, you've just alluded to it, Carl. Um, you know, when I started this work, you know, I've had a, almost a 30 year career doing this kind of work, but as I started this specific in the last three or four years, I just started reaching out to people who interested me. And all of a sudden there's a groundswell of people that are opening up their doors to me. And, and, and they do that because a, the content appeals to them, but they do that when, when you're genuine and you're congruent between your, your values, your words, your actions, your behaviors. And, and when you don't have an agenda, when you're not trying to manipulate, you know, and, and so I would encourage people, if they're interested in the latest thought leadership, partnership, you know, whatever IP is out there to help them, then just reach out to these people. They're all very accessible, you know, and, and I found that, that meet, meeting people then leads to meet new people. And all of a sudden you've got this, this, you know, this ripple effect. And I love it. It's just, that there is, there is a growing movement of people that want to shift the narrative globally on these conversations. And they're hard, right? And they're uncomfortable. But the more that we grow, the more that it gets easier. So I would just offer that as an invitation to, to listeners as well. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Well, that's a great segue into the last question. How can our listeners connect with you, find your content, learn more, and, and uh, really dig in? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, obviously, uh, you can find me on my website, which is paulmacleadership.com. I think you'll put that in the, the notes and stuff. Yep. Um, LinkedIn, you can find me under Paul McCarthy. Um, and if anyone wants to message me on LinkedIn, just, you know, maybe men- mention you met me on the Kyle, Kyle show, as it were. Um, and, and, you know, I'm happy to share anything that, that might help people. So if people do want to connect with me, you know, one of the, the tools I mentioned was a name what you see tool. And I'm happy to share that tool because I, I really think very simple tools like that can make such tremendous difference and impact. So if anyone wants to, to leverage that, happy to share. And obviously on my podcast is, uh, is coming up. We're launching in, I think the first episode on December 13th. Um, so that'll give more information to who I am, my story, and then we'll be doing monthly episodes after that. Absolutely. We will have all that information in the show notes. Uh, check it out. You know, Paul, uh, just a kind of a plug here. Paul puts out great content on LinkedIn. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a, just a treasure trove of, of information out there. I encourage you to, to, uh, open up that podcast player, click in, connect, you know, continue to build, uh, build out that network, um, of like-minded innovators. So Paul, thank you again. Uh, just a wonderful conversation. Uh, I just wish we had another two or three hours and we could rogue in this thing. So appreciate the time. Yeah, likewise too. I think yeah, maybe there's a follow up at some point, but uh, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff we could continue talking about. So you your your time is really valuable, and and, and I've really appreciated it, you and Molly. So thanks for having me on. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate thanks, it. Paul. All right, that does it for the Rebel HR podcast. Big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy. Or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we represent. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.